folks. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, today's story, we're talking to Todd Adelot, and Todd considers himself a historical runner, an uh, ultra runner, not just a runner, but a, an ultra runner. And what that means is, you know, Todd, he, he's going to say this. He doesn't live in the mountains of Colorado and, and can reach enlightenment that way. He has to work with what he has in New York City. And what does New York have that a lot of places might not have is tons and tons of history, important American history. And so Todd has developed a style of running where he studies a subject like someone's life, like Nikolai Tesla or Edgar Allan Poe, or a subject like slavery or the uh, locations of a serial killer's acts. And it acts as an A-C-T-S, not A-X-E, by the way. Um, and he will basically create a route, a running route that that goes to these locations, whether it be their homes or significant events that happened in their lives, and will put together a route where he can then run, and it ends up being 50 to 100 miles. And he says it's just so powerful to add this layer of history to an adventure experience. I've personally done something like this where I've biked to authors' homes, like historical authors' homes, and it was it was an adventure unlike any I had ever had because it, it, it you were constantly reading and learning as you went, and it was almost like the effort you were putting in to get there made the information and the experience just sink in so much more versus, you know, driving there or something. So Todd is on to something here, and I think it can be a really, really fascinating thing to add to your adventure is the historical element. Obviously, for a lot of us, we're already interested in the history of a place we might be going to. Uh, but Todd ma- says making it a focus of the adventure uh, can really elevate the experience. So I, I think he's onto something. But the the adventure we're talking about specifically today is the Warriors Ultra Run. It's an event that he plans every year. That's actually a group event. You can join it, and it's called the Warriors Run because it's named after the Warriors cult film, the film, you know, about the gangs in New York City, the Warriors. Uh, very quotable movie from 1979. He has recreated the experience where, like, the gangs are chasing each other through the subways and through the city in the middle of the night. You can go do that with Todd this weekend, July 23rd and 24th. Uh, All the information's on his website, which is in the show notes. You can get dressed up as someone from the gang, but the one gang takes off running and the other gang chases them. So he does that in the in his run. And so they get a head start and you got to chase them down. You all go 28 miles to Coney Island through the middle of the night. It's unsanctioned. So like there's no closed roads. You're running like people are confused as heck as what's going on because there's like 150, 200 people running through New York City in the middle of the night. And it's just such a cool idea. And I, I think... The possibilities are endless with this kind of stuff, and I love what Todd's doing. So uh, if you'd like to learn more, go to the show notes. It's going to be a fascinating experience, once-in-a-lifetime experience, honestly. And Todd's uh, passion for all this and excitement is just nothing short of contagious. So I've been talking way too long, so let's go ahead and jump in. All right, folks, welcome to the show. You heard a little bit about Todd's story in the intro, but we're going to get into it because this is really unique for us. This is really interesting, really different. I'm sure you're kind of used to that at this point, Todd, but Todd ate a lot. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mason. How are you doing? Really excited to uh, join you today on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Yes, yes. And this is a reschedule for folks that don't know. Um, 
Sometimes that happens with this show is you just unexpected things happen, but that's adventure. Things happen. You got to make adjustments. So thank you for being flexible. But I want to know, first thing I always ask, where are you coming from today and where's home for you if those aren't two different places? Yeah, sure. I, um, I live and work in New York City. So uh, I live, work and run in New York City and have been here for over 20 years now. Oh, wow. Right in the city. Right in the city. I work in uh, by day in One World Trade Center. I'm a partner at an agency called Allison and Partners. I work in the public relations industry by day. And, uh, and by night, I run underground. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> that is awesome. So what, what, what got you into running? I think there's a story there, but I, I would love to know. And is also, is that your main sport of choice? I know, I know you do it a lot, but is there other things you do as well? Or is it really just, I run every chance I get? Yeah. I mean, I surfed here in New York a couple times a week, two, three times a week for about 10, uh, 15 years before I fell in love with, with ultra running. And really, Mason, my story is very bound up in kind of uh, ritual and Tommy Rivers Pusey and in, in particular, you know, if you, if you know Tommy Rivers, you know, with a long flowing beard and yeah, uh, kind of, yeah. And he really, to me, Tommy Rivers kind of represents this kind of wild and free uh, kind of approach to ultra running. Um, I really, as I fell into the sport and really started falling into long distance running, and, you know, it's very, it can be hard to run really long distances in New York City. I was finding myself, you know, doing five or six loops of the Central Park, which is fine. Um, but it gets really boring, uh, frankly, after a while. Well, when what's you're just the running. limiting factor? Traffic or just like logistics of crossing streets? Is that mostly it? Well, yeah. I mean, the limiting factor on like a loop like that, frankly, for me, is boredom. Um, truly when you're just running in a loop and you're just running around and around and around and you're trying to like clock in 50 miles, you know, it can, it can really get boring over time. There's so many, so many albums you can listen to, to, to fill that time. And so, you know, what had started happening to me is first, I started kind of falling in love with this idea of becoming this ultra runner that was going to run these long distances and I was going to escape from New York City and go to Hunter Mountain and, you know, tackle these extreme distances over hills and mountains and valleys and and do all that, that the ultra runners do. And then really over time, I just realized I can't do that. You know, it's enough when you, um, you know, you have a family, you're married, you have kids and you're leaving all the time to go run eight to 10 hours. And then you add a two to four hour drive to that equation, and it's just not conceivable. So over time, I started to realize that I really, these heroes of mine that I wanted to, Timothy Olson, Tommy Ribs, that I wanted to really imitate and kind of fall into these natural settings and be a long distance runner, I knew I couldn't do that. And so what really happened, I think um, around four or five years ago, I started taking off on these really destination runs to track historical events in New York City. And, you know, it, this city, as you, certainly, as you certainly know, is just packed with some of the most extraordinary history. But I would start taking off on these long, long runs to actually trace that history. 
And then over time, um, I started investing myself in the historical subject matter and the experiences I was running to. Um, and, and over time, so soon I was, you know, I abandoned the park and I would take off on a, you know, I think I ran 70 miles or nearly 70 miles to trace the history of Nikola Tesla in New York City. I ran to all of his labs, all of his, you know, homes, places he'd lived. And then I ran all the way out uh, to Wardenclyffe in, in Long Island to, at the time, where his unfinished lab was. And I finished the run out there. But the idea is, it, on these runs, over time, it became really me filling my mind as much as I could with the subject matter I was running to and then letting it go, so to speak, on these long historical ultra runs. What were you doing when you got there at those locations, like the labs? Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, it, so it really depends. You know, it was, it, the, the folks at the Tesla Science Center uh, were, were just incredible. So I called out there. Uh, I called them on the phone and I said, you know, I'm running for like a day and a half out to get to your place. And, uh, and uh, am I going to be allowed on the grounds? And so they said yes, and they made arrangements for me to get up to the lab and everything. But when I got there, it was really extraordinary. They had uh, local political figures there, a huge reception. There was like 50, 60 wow. people. The whole Tesla Science Center Foundation and the people there. Um, and you can go out there and visit Tesla's lab right now. Uh, but th they had an event for me. So sometimes there's things like that. And then sometimes, very often, it's just me by myself after a long-distance run reflecting. Do you feel, you know, it's so interesting you say that because you don't have those grand landscapes necessarily like they do out west where ultra-running kind of is focused, but you do have something that they can't ever have, which is that level of history. That's so funny you say that. I've done bike tours on both sides of the country, and I've noticed the draw and the excitement is historical when it's on the East Coast because of the history there. So do you, do you feel that fills the void for you and what you're looking for? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'll tell you, like, one story that was kind of really the beginning of what I call historical ultra running for me. So for like six months, I was just finding like cool historical sites to run to, be it 10 miles, 20 miles, 30 miles, 40, 50, whatever it was going to be. And I'd run there and I'd take pictures and kind of document it all. It was more or less mm -hmm. historical tourism, if you will. But things changed completely for me with the Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, historical ultra run. That's really where things start started for me in earnest in terms of approaching running differently. So with that particular run, what I did is I didn't just set off on to run to all these Poe sites in New York City. I spent about a month studying Poe. So I read biographies. I, I read a ton of his work. I was an English major in college, so I studied Poe there. But I reacquainted myself with many of his short stories, his literary criticisms, poetry. I read several biographies at the time. And then I strung together this route. And for me, it was just going from the southern tip of Manhattan, where he started in New York City when he first arrived, and then going all the way up to his final spots in the city, where, which were up on the Grand Concourse in the Fordham area. And I just strung them all together. And, and I was going on this run, and it was um, 
the day I chose the Poe run, it was um, freezing. It was like 35 degrees and raining. It was just horrible. It was dark. It was a dark day. And I decided to keep the run just, I, I almost never cancel runs due to the elements. Sounds like a perfect day for an Edgar Allan Poe run. It was run. so perfect. <laughs> and so I, I took off on the run and a really interesting thing happened. So as I was on this run, going from the southern tip of Manhattan all the way up to the Bronx, I think it was just like a 21-miler all in, um, and it finishes on at his home, Poe Cottage, which is still up in the Grand Concourse. But I started realizing on the run, I had a moment of clarity. And it was because I'd consumed all of this history, and I knew his life, and I knew what was going on. But in the middle of the run, I realized I was running to death, as strange as that sounds. But Poe's history in New York City, he kept moving northward in the city to find cleaner air for his wife, his cousin. And it's a tragic tale. He loved her dearly. And he keeps moving north as she gets sicker and sicker. So this was a common treatment for consumption in its day was to, to take air, to find cleaner air. So you couldn't get that even on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where he lived at one point in the upper room of a, of a home with his wife and his wife's mother. And um, eventually he moves up into the Bronx. So, I mean, he's, he's trying to outrun death is really what he does and or tries to do. And then, of course, she dies in that little cottage. So at the end of this 21-mile run, I'm in this cottage. I'm standing over her bed where she died. And I'm standing next to the chair that Poe sat in and held her hand as she died. And I'm soaking wet, and I've run 21 miles, right? And so it was super heavy, man. It was like really, really intense. And I get home to my house and I like crawl into bed. And after anyone who run, who's run long distances knows this sensation, when you've run in excess of 20 miles, 30, 40, 50, 60, you like lie in bed afterwards and like all these incredible things happen in your mind, right? You have these sensations that that's the stuff you run for, right? That's what you run for is to have those moments, these extraordinary, profound moments of clarity. But that run itself, the Poe run, became a memento mori, became a reminder of my own death. It was very strange to be running 21 miles after all these years chasing this man's life with my running shoes, and then to end up where his wife died and the beginning of his true demise starts. It makes you reflect on your own life, it makes you reflect on your own mortality. And so at that run, with that run, that's when I went from like a guy taking pictures and being a running tourist to being what I call a historical ultra runner, which is an attempt to immerse myself in the experiences I run to. It is a replacing of the physical world. Tommy Ribs has the mountains. He has the, he has the valleys. He has the canyon. He can go into those places and surrender his mind. I can't. So I, so I replaced the physical lattice with a mental one. And that's really where I started doing a lot of these things and designing all these really, you know, some, most of the runs are historically based, but then sometimes 
you know, they're just super cool. <laughs> the Warriors run was kind of a, a fantasy run of mine where I recreated this, the escape route from that film. But they're all different, all the runs I do. That's so fascinating that it took the run to this, this other level, this other dimension almost. What do you think it was? Or what, why do you think running helps bring this out for you? Because a lot of people would be satisfied with studying Poe and then visiting these places by transportation of some sort, you know, whether that be bike or public transportation or driving. Why do you think running helps draw so much more out of it when this person might have not been a runner, someone like Edgar Allan Poe or Tesla? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition. I know you've heard about them recently because we've had some guests on recently that credits Gnarly for helping them do the the adventures that we talk about on this show. So uh, Chris Fisher was one who did the Vert Max. He did 400,000 feet of elevation gain in a month. Check out that episode. Uh, that was not too far back. And he credits Gnarly Nutrition for keeping him, his body literally sustained during that time, just packing in the calories. It's amazing nutrition for anyone doing anything adventure, uh, endurance-based, whether that's in the mountains or bikepacking or whatever. It's a great thing to have with you prior to an, uh, an adventure training and also during an adventure. And also Jason Hardrath, who recently did um, the 100 fastest known times. He did 100 mountains in 50 days and just was slamming gnarly nutrition. He also credits gnarly for essentially keeping his body sustained. And so um, gnarly nutrition has been around since 2008. They were born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, uh, and they are committed to educating and inspiring athletes of all levels to be as nutritionally sound as possible. Their nutrition supplements are certified by NSF and have science-backed products free of hormones, free of GMOs, proprietary blends, uh, and nothing artificial. So Gnarly is going to help you get ready and help you sustain during uh, those huge adventure efforts. So if you're looking for the best tasting and the most trusted sports nutrition brand for any endurance athletes, go to Go Gnarly, and that is G-N-A-R-L-Y dot com, and use the code GnarlyAdventure15 for 15% off. And just, you know, a personal plug here, I love Gnarly. I love the folks there. They're doing such a fantastic job. They have been so great to work with. Uh, they helped provide some products for um, our Journey to 100 film series uh, that we were doing giveaways with at the end of every film screening. So it's been a pleasure to work with them so far. So if you'd like to support the folks that are supporting this show, definitely go visit gonarly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Yeah, so, yeah, you're getting into the big stuff now. I'm going to rip off a line. I was listening to um, Tommy Ribs on a podcast many years ago. It was an extraordinary podcast. I forget which one it was. but I, I, It's probably I, our I'm show. I'm going to misquote him, but it was really, he was saying something along the lines of, you know, you can either sit down and meditate and pray for weeks and months on end, or you can run 50 miles and it's a shortcut to that same space. So, and I really came to be quite, certainly with the Poe run, I, I started becoming really fascinated with the idea 
of there being this third vector, if you will, with running. I know this sounds really heady, but I, I, I think about these things a lot. I, to me, there's two primary vectors in running that are super important. There's further and faster. What we're seeing in both vectors is just so astonishing over the last five years in particular. But, you know, that's like Moore's Law stuff. That's not going to stop and it's going to keep on going. We're going to keep going, you know, 200 is the new 100, 400 is the new 200. I mean, it's just the distances are going to keep going. The speeds are going to keep going. And I believe that that both of those vectors provide a profound avenue for enlightenment and that space that that Tommy Rivers, uh, Tommy Rivers says you can you can enter into. So you know, high cost of entry for both of those vectors. So I, I believe there's a third vector and that's deeper. And I think that there's many ways into that space as a runner, right? Um, Timothy Olson really focuses a lot on meditation and things like that. I think that's really powerful. Um, I focus on history and catalyzing experiences that fill the mind while you're running. That's really what I'm trying to do, is I'm trying to to fill the mind with an experience that the runner can chew on as they run. And what it does is it distracts you from the pain of the body. So I was recently talking with someone who was like considering their first ultra, and I was encouraging them to make their first ultra my NYC Black History 50, which is another race I run here in the city. But it's a 50-miler. Uh, to black history sites. And I always tell people, you want to, like, if you think you can only run 10 miles, I'll bet you money I can have you running 50 with little to no training. And that is, you run between profoundly important parts, points of this city. Burial grounds where enslaved Africans were buried and paved over. The graveyards are all gone. We paved over them. We put buildings on top of them. It's terrible. They're all throughout our city. Our graveyards for the enslaved Africans who built New York. They're all over the city. They're all paved over. Right? So, but if you run between places like that and you do the research and you run to stops on the Underground Railroad and you're underneath Plymouth Church in their basement, in the dark, where enslaved Africans hid, when you're in those spaces during a run, your next 10 miles are going to be so easy because you're going to be thinking of many different things beyond the pain in your hips and your legs. So this vector, I think, provides a unique conduit for ultra runners. Jeez, Todd, that is... I see what you're talking about now in the sense of how this could be just profoundly, a profoundly moving experience when you start to understand it. Not, not obviously as serious as, as slavery, but I feel like with any adventure you go on, if you understand the place you're going through, it is so much more rewarding of an experience. I kick myself when I go to on an adventure or visit somewhere and then I come home and to only realize I missed some amazing place that I could have known about going into it to, to, to build that excitement, to build that understanding going in. 
versus learning about it after the fact, it's almost, it feels like a missed opportunity. Even though you, you were in the same place, you had such a, a much more limited understanding. So I feel prior research before any adventure vastly uh, increases just the, the brilliance and the vibrance and, and uh, the, the appreciation of the experience, but especially for something as, as heavy and deep and, and meaningful as that, I can only imagine. Yeah, I, that's a great point. Your, your mind wandering to other things is a great way to get through an experience like that. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, it's really, when I approach running like this, I'll tell you another story that is interesting and kind of reflects what this approach to running uh, can do to folks. So there's a run I've done twice that's 60 plus miles that I call the run of Sam. Um, and this run, uh, I think it's 68 miles. And over the course of a single night, uh, the run starts up at David Berkowitz's house in Yonkers up on Pine Street, his own house. And then over the course of a night, I run uh, 68 miles uh, visiting all the murder sites and all the sites of major shootings over a night. Now, what this run absolutely is not is a glorification of crime. And it is not a glorification of the, of the crimes of David Berkowitz. But what it is, I met with, um, I reached out to the victims uh, before I, some of the victims of the crimes before I uh, took off on this run the first time. And I actually had uh, lunch or dinner with one of the victims and, and got his whole story. But what I do is I study the victims as much as I can. I, I studied um, for both of those runs. I did the run of Sam twice. I did it two years in a row. For each of those runs, I studied, I mean, I want to say at least 100 hours. Um, I studied everything that you could read in the papers about the victims. And it's just so tragic what's happened to all the victims and their families um, the amount of pain. Uh, some of Sam victims' uh, crimes are very unique in that the individuals who were killed were killed in moments that we all know. You know, the first kiss, growing up, kind of exploring love, uh, sitting in a car, making out, all those sorts of things. Everyone was kind of killed or attacked in life's most precious moments for absolutely no reason. And the crimes themselves, if you really study them, they're fully demonic crimes. I'm a very committed Catholic. I'm very committed. And uh, I take that stuff really seriously. And so the Son of Sam crimes are truly demonic, right? The letters he left behind, these are demonic crimes. And these are demonic acts that took place at those places, right? So you can't just run into a murder site willy-nilly and be taking pictures, right? You have to run. I try, and, um, I try and run with reverence. And on a run like that, that's really what I did. So I, I met with one of the victims. I studied the victims as much as I could. And then I, I, I went on that run. And what I tried to do over the course of 68 miles was, was hold the victims in my mind and their story throughout the run. And I, and I tell this story because I had uh, probably the most profound experience I've ever had running on that run. 
on the run of Sam on the second time I did it. And, and I'll share what happened during that run. So when you come into a murder site like that, where someone's been killed, someone died, and the family's been torn apart, and the family's never recovered. If you read about these crimes, the families get interviewed every 10 years on the anniversaries, and you see that the whole family falls apart. It's just so horrifying when you read the impacts of crime. So over the course of this run, I would come into each space and I'd drop on my knees and pray for a long time and then move, move on. But over the course of the night, it became so profound that I went on, uh, I would say it was between miles 40 and 50. There was like an eight, 10 mile stretch between shooting sites. So I had a long stretch. And I entered into this zone where my consciousness really opened. I mean, like every ultra runner out there who's listening, who's been in a 50, who've been in a 100, they have had these moments of clarity where all of a sudden you're in that Tommy Ribs spot. You're in that spot that the 50 mile gives you the shortcut to, or you have to work for a month in prayer or meditation, but you're going to take a shortcut. and. It was a really amazing thing that started happening. I started during this run focusing my mind on the victims on this eight-mile stretch, and I started saying their names in a rotating carousel in my mind. And I'd studied them so profoundly, the victims, that I knew their faces, I knew their names, and I just chanted their names. I mean this over like eight miles of running. And I was fully connected to them. I was fully connected spiritually to them. It was the most deep running experience I've ever had. And it was on a run that was fully demonic in nature. That, to me, that's the third vector of running. You can go further, you can go faster, or you can go deeper, right? And there's my approach to deeper is a little quirky, but it'll get you to that shortcut, but you have to find the experiences that'll catalyze your mind. Yeah. You, you took that third vector way farther than the other two. Holy cow. That is, I've never heard anything like this, Ty. This is wild. Such a, a, a unique approach to something that you feel that you understand from the outside looking in, you know, ultra running, you just run really far. I'm not much of a runner. I'm a cyclist though. And, um, gosh, this is just wild. I, I don't even know how to approach that. So, so once you did this experience and realized how impactful it could be to basically trace historically significant events around a theme or around a certain occurrence, did your mind just start opening up to what else is out there? What else could I put together? I mean, honestly, the options are endless. It's whatever you're interested in historically. What 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 started? What else did you started start to think about? And how do you even choose? If that makes sense. How do you even choose? Yeah. So you know, history would be like the number one thing, and then the other thing is fantasy, frankly. And that's where the warriors all to run. Now, there's a historical component to that as well, right? Like the history of the warriors in New York City 
is playing off very real 1970s gang history in New York City, right? So there's a huge historical component. But that particular ultra run, I did that alone in 2018. And I called that trip, that particular run, it's like an acid trip. So I grew up, I grew up completely obsessed with the Warriors, right? So I was a white, white kid from the suburbs. And my only view in the New York City, I was from Rochester, New York. My only view in the New York City was basically this 1978 cult film, right, by, by Walter Hill. But I, I was obsessed with the Warriors as a kid. It was this, it, that movie helped bring me here. It, 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 I was so fascinated by this city. It was something, I, it just consumed me as a kid. And me and my brother would sit down in our basement and just watch this movie over and over and over again. And where were you watching from? Uh, Rochester, New York, and in, in our basement. In okay, basement Rochester. I was going to say, because, you know, you're, you're fantasizing about the city and your yeah. view of the city is being completely shaped by this movie. Yeah, I mean, and everyone in Rochester thinks people in New York are crazy. So, <laughs> so no one ever, I didn't even know people who traveled here when I was a kid and visited. They were so scared of New York. But yeah, it was this faraway place. It was dangerous. Um, this gang was half white, half black. I, I, I you know, I, I lived in an almost fully white community. So all of these things were new and fascinating to me. And a really interesting thing happened with this particular run, because I was just like getting into my whole thing with historical ultra running. And I said to myself, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to run this one solo. And so what I did, I, this was 2018. And I went into Van Cortlandt Park in the middle of the woods there at like one in the morning. And... Um, there's, if you know their cross-country track in Van Cortlandt Park, there's a, a very famous hill. It's called Cemetery Hill or Vault Hill. And uh, it's where the Van Cortlandt family actually were laid to rest, all of them. Uh, now they were moved uh, out of that cemetery. It's an empty cemetery now. But at any rate, I, I decided that that was the fictional site of the conclave. Because uh, the conclave scene from the movie was actually shot in Riverside Park, but it was fictionally set in Van Cortlandt Park. So I went into the woods at one in the morning in Van Cortlandt Park um, and then took off running for Coney Island. And so I went all the way down and I, I tried to follow, you know, some of the key stops in the film. So I came down Broadway and then cut uh, when I got to the Upper East Side, cut through Riverside Park where the baseball furies chase them. And then there's another scene at 72nd and Broadway. So I went there. And then in 2018, I ran through the subways. So I ran uh, on that run to Coney Island. I then ran through the Union Square subway station um, until I came out on the other side and then kept running because <laughs> no warriors running uh, for me was complete without the subway run part. And so I, I got to Coney Island in the morning, right at dawn, as I wanted to. And I just threw that up on Facebook, like, you know, announcing it to a small group of people who were following me at that time. And it just, it was crazy what happened. I started getting phone calls. I started getting text messages. I started getting Facebook notes from all these ultra runners saying that they're fanatics of the Warriors. And if I ever did this again, could they come with me? And that's, that's literally, 
and and that's uh, for the, that's when I started saying to myself I was going to turn that particular Todd Adelot run into a public run, into a group run, and that's and that's really what's I think we we're going to have about 150 gang members this year. Uh, it's really something because the whole <laughs> thing was in the Times last year. The New York Times did it. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to plug that New York Times article. It's amazing the pictures, the the stories. I, I'm kind of blown away that that this uh this kind i'm not blown away that it's taken off i'm just blown away by the idea what that first year you were alone what kind of reactions were you getting from people i mean so first of all running through times square (laughs) at three in the morning is just sublime I mean, I just can't emphasize. First of all, running through New York City, okay, from one in the morning until six in the morning is is an experience that very you see a part of New York that native New Yorkers never see, and and I, I really mean this. Like when you run, if you join the Warriors Ultra, you will you know we stage a conclave at a secret location in the South Bronx. It's an abandoned lot <laughs> that we find, that we found. And uh, we stage a conclave there. We try, we did it last year. We did our conclave last year in under five minutes because we don't have permits for this stuff. And I don't want to end up in jail. <laughs> so so uh, we basically flash mob a conclave. And this year we're going to try and do it. We extend it a little more. Because we're trying to get out of there before the police come. Is <laughs> the idea and have the race be gone? <laughs> right. You know, have everyone running by the time the police come. Um, but I think this year the conclave will be around seven minutes, and it's wild. I mean, it's wild. First of all, anyone who comes to our run, the every single runner is dressed up. We're talking; they're in warriors' vests, they're in baseball furies outfits, they're rogues, they're riffs, they're Lizzies. There's not a person at that race who's not in full costume uh, or they would feel really embarrassed. It's that kind of a vibe. And we all meet at a bar, um, the fantastic tortoise and hare bar on Broadway up in the Bronx. And we hang there from about eight at night till one in the morning. It is a huge party. (laughs) It is a huge party. And then we leave the bar en masse and, uh, walk to the conclave and then it goes down (laughs) it is a really wild brief ceremony where we're recreating the conclave for the film and people are screaming and going crazy and then what happens at the end of the conclave is our warriors elite team so these these are the men and women who won the race previously they are placed on on an elite team uh, we buy them custom warriors vests, the winners, that is, from the prior race. And the elite team is given a 10-minute head start out of conclave. And then they're chased by the full field. So our nine-member elite team is going to be chased by around 130 ultra runners all night long through the city of New York. They're given a 10-minute lead, and then it's on. And uh, we're tracking them by GPS live so everyone can see where they are at any given time is the goal to catch them yeah so and if so what happens 
Yeah, so we invented a whole new format <laughs> for this. So this is the world's first urban chase. This format's never been invented. So we had to, uh, and I have a steering committee of um, like eight, nine ultra runners, we call it Cleon's Gang, uh, that have been with me since 2018 building this event. They're real serious ultra runners and they're real serious warriors fanatics. And they work with me to ensure that the race stays true to the spirit of the film and that we create a format that's never been done, done in the history of running. So the way the format works is the elite team um, is led by a war chief. So that's from the movie. If you've watched The Warriors, there's this huge fight that breaks out um, between Swan and Ajax. And Swan is the war chief. So um, we have our elite team elect a war chief. And the, uh, the team this year elected Karen Elaine. Karen Elaine uh, was our third place finisher. He's from Black Men Run. He's an amazing human being running for district assembly in East New York. Great guy. So he's the war chief. And so here's the format. Here's how it works. He's got eight other ultra runners, men and women on this team. They are all with him. They all leave as a group together, 10 minutes ahead of the full field. They have to stay together until the moment they are passed. So here's how it works. So they take off. The war chief is in charge. The second anyone from the, and they have lights on their back, right? They have, they're lit up so that everyone can see them from a distance. Um, and the moment anyone in the field passes the elite team, at that moment, the elite team can break up and it becomes an open foot race for, for Coney Island. Now, there's a set of other rules that, you know, have to be employed as well, because the challenge here is for the war chief. The war chief has to get his gang of nine runners all the way to Coney Island, ideally ahead of the gangs chasing him or chasing them. So what happens is if someone on his team, so we had to come up with rules. What happens if you're running with Karen Elaine? I mean, these guys, they're really running, right? <laughs> they're really running fast paces. We're talking seven-minute seven paces, sometimes faster, right? These, they're really moving. Uh, the winner of the 28-mile race last year came in at 3.11, 3 minutes 11, I think. So they're really moving. Now, if an athlete wants to drop off the elite team, you have to allow for that because any elite athlete can still have a bad day and still get tired. So we had to create rules. So if you're going to drop off the elite team, you can during the race if you're feeling tired. But the whole the war team, the war chief has to stop the gang. And then the whole team has to take a two minute enforced penalty before they can start again. So it allows the field to catch up on you. So the war chief is incentivized to motivate his team to stay in the race fully. So the war chief becomes a coach. Now, last year, the, the elite team was passed at mile seven. And those two guys who passed them went on to win the race. So we'll see what happens this year. No, that's too cool. So what are, what are some of the unique challenges 
with this 28 mile run through the city. It's obviously not a sanctioned event. So you don't have, you know, roads closed. You kind of have to have your head on a swivel. And wh- what have been some of the things you got to kind of watch out for? And all, aside from having to run in jeans, like a lot of them are or wearing, <laughs> you know, literal uh, uh, gang vests and baseball uniforms and all kinds of random stuff like that. What are some of the obstacles? Just getting on the subway, all that stuff. Yeah, so it's such a great question. Mason, such a great question. So, you know, outside of the costumes and everything, you know, the big challenges for this race are safety. Safety, it's a huge issue. If you're going to encourage people to run through New York City between the hours of one and five in the morning while dressed as a gang member, you're asking to do them, you're asking people to do something that's frankly not safe. Right. It doesn't seem like safety is at the top of your of your priority list. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm really blessed actually by uh, Cleon's gang and my advisors and everyone uh, because they've been, this event, when I first, when I ran it, so the first year we did it as a group run, it was like 28 runners. This was in 2019. The race was a lot more unsafe then, I'll put it that way. We were running through subways and all kinds of crazy stuff when we had a small group. So we don't do any of that stuff anymore. The the run stays purely on Broadway, takes the runners through Riverside Park, and then goes back on Broadway, goes around Union Square subway station, and then down into Brooklyn. So we have a designated single route. And and that's the big thing. We kept the route on Broadway. And, you know, I, I truly consider myself one of the world's leading authorities on how to run safely in New York City in the middle of the night, because I do it so often just on my own. But, you know, your key to safety in New York, even in this environment where there's been a lot of crime and such, is you want to stay on A, major roads, which is why we're on Broadway the whole time, right? And and the police are on Broadway, so we're on Broadway. And and that's why we stay there. Um, And then, of course, what we also do that's super important is no one runs alone. Absolutely no one runs alone. So up at before Conclave, we are going around and meeting with all the runners and making sure that everyone is in a group. So no one runs alone. Everyone's in a group. And then beyond that, of course, what you need is a release form that is truly fully honest. And every single athlete who's going to come out to this run is made fully aware that there's no street closers. uh, There's no aid stations. There's no porta potties. There's none of that in this race. It is a fully underground race. I mean, we even do our official times based on our watches and the honor system. (laughs) So it's not even an official starting tape that you step on and off. Um, It's a true underground race, um, but we, we do everything that we can to make it as safe as possible. And then it finishes with a huge party on the boardwalk sponsored by the absolutely spectacular people at ABC Beers. Hey, I appreciate that. I, I When I checked out the New York Times, I was blown away. A couple can shots in there. We're so happy that that happened. And I, I got to tell you, I'm a, such a fan of your beers, such a fan. So it was, it's so amazing to have you there. And our runners went crazy. We went through all the beers you gave us immediately last year. So... We're going to buy more this year too, Mason. As a race director, 
for something so unique and, and potentially dangerous. I think the last thing you want to give people at sunrise after running 28 miles is alcohol. So you, <laughs> you, you want something they can celebrate with, but not compromise any, uh, any further safety. So <laughs> probably a good move on your end. So t- tell me this, you know, this is, a. Uh, so unique and it's obviously you, you only did this what three years ago was the first year you said yeah 2019 was the 2019. first and it was oh, just you yeah well 20 so 2018 i did it alone okay, 2019 was yep. me and like 28 people and then it got slowly bigger each year i slowly i think i think it's gotten a lot bigger but <laughs> Yeah, I think I think we'll do about a 150 this year is my guess 150 so so, so yeah. in an effort to, I don't know, keep it underground or, 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 or keep it safe, not safe, but keep it what it is. What are your thoughts with kind of the, the idea growing? Is it like, okay, maybe we got to do two, or maybe there's other things you're already thinking of. What are your thoughts as this idea gets out? Because it's obviously really, really fun for people to join and really exciting to do in the middle of the night. I think, you know, I've had this talk with my team. We think we can run this event up to 300. That's where we think it starts getting really challenging. I mean, I have to tell you, you know, when you're doing an event between the hours of one in the morning and like six in the morning, (laughs) it truly, it opens up a lot of possibilities. So, um, you know, just in terms of volume, the only, the only concerns we have are actually conclave because, you know, we everyone's screaming and yelling. The police will come <laughs> if we're going to wake people up in the Bronx. But I think about 300. After that, oh boy, I don't know what to do after if when we get to 300. It'll be a great problem to have, and I have a feeling it's going to come, Mason. Oh, gosh, I don't doubt it. This sounds <laughs> like such a good time. Has anyone from the film ever shown up or just interested or reached out or anything like that? No, so it's it's really interesting. I've taken um, a very cautious, I know, there's no way the men and women in the film have not read the stories, especially after the Times thing. Oh, yeah, they, taken, the people had to be sharing it with them left and right. Yeah, exactly. So they definitely know about it. I haven't reached out to them yet. I'm kind of, I'm kind of waiting for them to reach to me. Um, one thing that we've never done, and this is like right on the website and everything. So I'm being a little cautious about the actors in, in the movie for a specific reason. And that is uh, I had heard anecdotally through many folks uh, that the Rocky Run, also a Paramount Pictures-based theme run in Philadelphia, uh, I had heard rumors that Paramount um, – was upset with the Rocky Run because they were selling T-shirts and marketing and doing all this stuff with the Rocky brand that they weren't allowed to do. I believe they're 100% allowed to do all of that now, uh, but they had to work through a process, is my understanding, with Paramount Pictures. So we've got it right on our website. We don't sell T-shirts. We don't market in that way. Uh, and we we really try and be deeply... I mean, the Warriors community, people... I mean, they're, this is a true cult film, and I've discovered that they're really fanatical about the brand, the, the, the fans. Um, so I'm incredibly proud, actually, of what we've done because um, our event is really true to the spirit of the film. It's super underground, super edgy, and really acknowledges kind of the spirit of the movie. 
And we also, another final thing I'll mention that I'm deeply, deeply proud of. You know, though, though the bulk of our runners, you know, demographically are still white uh, signing up for this race. One of the most important things about the Warriors is its appeal to many racial audiences. So I, when I first ran this route alone in 2018, one of the individuals I was introduced to immediately was uh, Kovan Flowers, who heads up uh, Black Men Run NYC. And I reached out to Kovan uh, about this event I was building, the Warriors Ultra Run, and he leapt on it for Black Men Run. So they're very involved in this. Karen Lane is from Black Men Run. Brandon Jackson, who's been on the elite team previously, is from Black Men Run. Um, the Warriors is, was very important, in the, as important in the Black community as it was in the white community. And it's a very interesting thing. So around the history of the film, you know, when they... Uh, when Walter Hill made the film, he originally wanted the Warriors gang to be either 100% uh, Latino or 100% Black and, la and Latino. And there was a big battle uh, with Paramount Pictures. And ultimately, they, they agreed on kind of a mix between a racially mixed gang. So I, I cite that to say that if you look at our elite team in particular, we really, really make a very significant and uh, proactive effort to try and make our elite team in some ways, the best extent possible, resemble the actual Warriors game. We're not saying that we've achieved that. Um, I will say it's our ambition and our steering committee. That's really the two things they really care about. A, safety, and the second is uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm very proud of this aspect of our race, that our elite team uh, is representative and reflective both of our real running community here in New York and reflective of the film that we're honoring. Wow. So interesting. I love that goal. And I love that the uh, you're trying to live to that spirit of the film as this grows and as this is so different than some of the other, and obviously not as uh Maybe not as heavy as some of the early other runs we yes. were talking about. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, this is actually, we're talking about a pretty lighthearted subject as the main topic of the today's talk. But I didn't, I knew th about those stories, but not, you know, the, the, the details. But w what else does this have you thinking as far as you've gone from following the tra tracks of serial killers to uh, technological heroes like Tesla to a cult movie from the seventies. I mean, your, your range is very wide. <laughs> what is, uh, what is, what else do you think can fall under this umbrella of historical ultra running or what else are you working on specifically? Yeah. So the other one, so I only, I have two public runs. One is of course the warriors. The other, um, is the NYC black history 50. And that is going to consume a huge amount of my time once the Warriors ends. And so that's your yours as well, in the sense of yeah. So and that's and that's really interesting, Mason. So that was a run I did that in 2019 for Black History Month. Did it alone, and it was a 45 miler uh, through all five boroughs, visiting all the top Black History sites. Um, and I started in Sandy Ground in Staten Island and then, you know, ran into New York and visited the African burial ground and all of that. And um, Plymouth Church and 
all these other great stops, a, a number of uh, burial grounds for enslaved Africans. So same thing happened there. That particular run, um, the local news here in the city, Fox 5 and WNBC TV did stories when I ran that, uh, just simply because I was working with the burial ground and they tipped off the media. And so the media followed me on that. And then the, the same thing happened. All these runners reached out and said, that's so cool. You did that for Black History Month. Are you going to do it again? So I decided to do make that one a public run as well. Um, and it really, it's so proud of that. So that was that just happened um, in February. It was our first one. We're doing it again the day before the Super Bowl. We're going to announce the, the dates shortly. We had about 90 runners on, on our very first one. And I think we'll have a huge volume of runners this year. Uh, I'm very, very proud to announce. I announced it just recently, uh, but Allison uh, Desir, Allison Mariella Desir, um, one of the most important influencers in our running community and a real, real leading light around equity and inclusion. And her new book is coming out in October by Random House called Running While Black. So she is really, really an important figure. And she was one of my partners. So I brought in, um, you know, just to state it candidly, Mason, the biggest challenge for me developing an NYC Black History 50 run is that I am a middle-aged white man. And I'm very, very uh, sensitive to history. And I study history and I take it very, very seriously. And much of what we know about black history has been curated to date, typically through white power structures. And so um, curating this race in 2021 was one of the most important things that, I, that I've done. And I took it incredibly seriously. And I brought in every, every major black history monument in the five boroughs with few exceptions came in as partners and then Harlem run and black men run. I partnered with predominantly, um, you know, black running organizations in the city. And I really allowed the voices to shape the event because it's very important. I didn't want Todd ate a lot picking all the sites. I don't want it to be like that. I, I, I feel like I'm capable of choosing most of the sites, but this has to be, um, curated to the best extent possible by those who are most at stake. And so um, I'm incredibly proud. So Allison was one of our partners that we worked with in 2021. And we made the decision, uh, I made the decision this year to name her the chairman, chairwoman of the NYC Black History 50. And we did that uh, for a very important reason. And that's this curation issue. So Allison is now uh, convening an independent committee that's going to be separate from me. And people, anyone, are, are, going, are going to be able to submit routes and things like that. But um, the ultimate route and themes for the NYC Black History 50 will, will be done by this independent committee that I will consult to. And we, we are intensely proud of that. We think it's going to become an incredibly big powerful race in this city. That race, Mason, that event will easily eclipse the Warriors in the next uh, few years. The interest in and around the, that particular event is extraordinary from corporate partners on down. People are really interested in that event. So we're going to build that.
Where will folks be able to find out more about that race as well as anything else you're doing? I know we've got the Warriors website, thewarriorsultra.com, but what else? Yeah, the other one is nycblackhistory5050.com. And that has last year's info on it, but it's going to be updated probably in the next week or so. But for those listening here, you're the first to know that the NYC Black History 50 will be held in New York the day before the Super Bowl. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. Saturday, February 12th, it looks like. That is right. Um, wow, you've got the route, or, or at least last year's route. Not sure how much is changing, but man, so amazing. You're working with the National Park Service. Oh, this is yeah. awesome. So awesome. Yeah, it, yeah it, was, it was a really, really great experience uh, building that race the first time. But I have to tell you, one of the real challenges for me is between the, being a race director now for the Warriors and a race director for the NYC Black History 50, it, it's hard for me to set out on these solo excursions because I'm like, so involved as a race director now. So oh I've yeah, don't don't plans. start a podcast. You'll never go on another adventure again. <laughs> that's that's my problem. It's like, hey, I'm I've got to sit here and interview people about it. I don't actually get to go a lot of the time now. But no, it's it's there is a balance. Um well well tell us uh give us maybe a word of advice. I, we should probably wrap this up. Um I'm gonna need to go, but Todd, you're an amazing storyteller and you obviously don't do this for a living. You don't make money at this. This is not your day job. What, what do you say to folks who are trying to pursue these interesting ideas, adventures, meaningful experiences through adventure sport on the side and pursue them to the best of their ability? You're, you're probably doing this better than anyone I know. Yeah, it's a, I get this question a lot. And the way the question often comes to me from people is um, I'll meet people from other cities and they'll say like, I'm so like interested in what you're doing, your historical to running, but you know, I live in Geneseo, New York, and you know, we really don't have a lot of history there to work with. So I, I get that one a lot. And so, and what I say to people is, is um, this process can be applied in many different ways. So you know, if if you are in a town or, or or region that doesn't have great history, well, maybe you have great geologic formations, right? Maybe you have extraordinary uh, wildlife, or maybe you have extraordinary trees, kinds of trees, rain, different geologic shapes, right? So you can set out on a run tracking down different kinds of trees, animals places, formations, right? So you can invest yourselves in that as well, right? As opposed to running the same routes each time. So it's just an exercise for me of filling the mind uh, with unique subject matter that can help distract it from the ravages of the body and complement, complement long distance running and how it opens the mind. Mm. I love it. And, and I'm, I'm doubtful that anyone lives in a place that doesn't have enough history to find interesting. I agree. I think there's always some interesting history, no matter where you are. That's so interesting. Dean, uh, Dean Car, uh, Carnassus? Yeah. He said his, what, what's going through his mind during a long run, I think I just saw this like last week somewhere. 
he's thinking about every single step of every mile for a hundred miles. And I said, that sounds brutal. (laughs) I cannot do that on a bike ride, my sport of choice. I have to be thinking about something like this, something interesting, engaging, stimulating to take my mind off of what my body's going through. I cannot approach it that way. And so I, I think a lot of people fall in that boat too. And it's so much more of a rewarding experience. I can I can speak personally to it, not to the level that you're talking about, but this is definitely getting me interested in how much can I learn about a place or about a, something before visiting, whether that's a, a road trip, as simple as that, mm-hmm. or running 72 miles through New York City. This is a really cool layer to put on any adventure or to create the venture itself around it like you're doing. I love it. But Ty, was there anything else you wanted to share with us before we uh, we jump off? No, Mason, I, I just really appreciate being with you today on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thank you so much uh, for your amazing interview and uh, for all the great questions. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>